All right. Go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 14. Okay, so once we finished the uh, trumpets uh, of judgment in uh, chapter 11, uh, that's when the seventh trumpet was blown. In chapters 12 through 15, we've talked about how we're kind of in this little uh, parentheses or in this kind of pause. And in this kind of pause, we're seeing things from kind of a heavenly perspective. So we, we kind of had this timeline of the seals being broken, of the trumpets being blown, that we kind of have in verses, chapters 12 through 15, this kind of section where we pull back. We've seen things kind of from a heavenly perspective. Uh, so in chapter 12, we saw the, the woman and the dragon, how the dragon tried to destroy the woman and the, the child, which was Christ. Uh, in 13, we saw the, the two beasts. We saw the, um, the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet and their uh, pursuit in trying to uh, steal honor and glory from God, try to steal God's throne and here in chapter 14, it's kind of we, we kind of close out this little parenthesis. We kind of uh, see kind of from a heavenly perspective the end of the end times. Kind of after we, as we get towards the end of this tribulation period when Christ returns. This is what we're seeing here in chapter 14. So some of the stuff that we're looking at in chapter 14 will actually be fulfilled later like chapters 19 and 20 and 21. But what we're seeing right now kind of in this little parentheses as we kind of step back from our kind of timeline of God pouring out his judgment, we kind of see a different perspective uh, on Jesus's second coming. So um, what we'll do is just kind of go section by section. So let me go ahead and pray for us and then we'll just start going. uh, We'll start with the first five verses, but then we'll just kind of go step by step. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you now and thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Father God, I thank you that though we might not know the exact details and though we might not uh, know the, the when that this is going to happen, Father God, we ultimately know that you are in control. Father God, that you have already spelled out the end. And Father God, we know that you are, as always, victorious. And so therefore, we have victory in you. Father God, open up our hearts and our minds as we look at your truth. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Okay, so let's start with verses 1 through 5 of Revelation, chapter 14. It says this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name on his father's, uh, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like a, the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is, though, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who, have, who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. 
So let's kind of look at the different things that are mentioned in this section so we kind of get an idea of what is going on. The first thing that we see is he says, Behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. We know the Lamb is Christ. And on Mount Zion, Mount Zion throughout Scripture is a reference to basically God's victory or being victorious in, uh, in God. So uh, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, together or against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So basically it's the nations plotting against God. Verse 4, it says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, we see this reference to Zion. And Zion is the spot of of God's victory. It's the spot where uh, God's followers, God's children, those who follow after God, they find their victory in Him. So as he talks about seeing this mount, and on the mount is this lion, we see that this is already a declaration of God's victory. As we move towards the end, or as we kind of get this glimpse of uh, Uh, The end, we've seen the beast, we've seen the false prophet, the Antichrist, we've seen them rise against God's people. We had at the end of chapter 13 that call for the church to persevere, the call for believers who are still there to persevere, to push forward. And so here we have this reminder that even though the beast has come, even though the false prophet has come, even though they make their war against God and against His children... Victory is ours in Christ. So we have the mount, it says, And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. Now this is a direct reference back to chapter 7. Flip back to chapter 7 real fast. This is where we're introduced to the 144,000. Start in verse, or just look at verse 4. Um, Well, look at verse 3. He's called to the angels and he tells them in verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So, remember... When we talked about that, we talked about that there were kind of two prevailing views. One view is this is a literal 144,000 people, 12,000 from each tribe, who were saved um, in this time of tribulation, who go out, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They serve as missionaries, taking the gospel out across the world, so that within this seven-year tribulation period, there is a gospel presence, there are people proclaiming the gospel, and there are still salvations during this time. The other prevailing view was that this 144,000 is not literal, but it's a representation of the church. This is a representation of God. God's children and God's people still here during that time, going out, being protected from the wrath and judgment God pours out on His enemy, being protected and sealed by God. Now, I wanted to remind us of that because it's going to come back up in just a second, but that's who the 144,000 is a reference to, a direct reference to. 
So he sees on the, this mount, he sees Mount Zion, which is a victory. He sees the 144,000. And then he says he hears a voice in verses 2 and 3. It says, uh, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. So he sits there and he hears this voice, and it's a voice of singing. And we'll get to the song in just a second, but it's a voice of singing. He describes it in two different ways. And the two ways that he describes it shows a power behind it, but also a beauty. It's like the sound of many... <clears throat> how's he say it? He says the sound of... Uh, like the roar of waters, like the sound of loud thunder. So it's this kind of deafening powerful sound. Yet at the same time, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So he hears this beautiful, powerful sound of these people singing and praising and declaring God's greatness and singing this new song. So what is the song? Well, first, Throughout Scripture, uh, whenever God is victorious or God's people are victorious in Him, we kind of see this idea of singing a new song. In Psalm 96.1, it says this, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Psalm 98.1 says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we kind of saw that kind of heavenly picture where the, um, the scroll is given to the Lamb for Him to break those seven seals. And in the verse 9 it says, and they, this is talking about the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders that surrounds the throne of God. And it says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed your people from every tribe and language and people and nation. So kind of throughout scripture we have this picture of new song being sung whenever God brings victory, whenever God brings salvation, whether it was in the Old Testament through the nation bringing salvation to his people who were under oppression or the New Testament those who proclaim and proclaim Jesus's greatness and worth to be able to do what only he can do in offering up salvation for his people. So the idea of this new song being sung is a common occurrence. It's a, it's a common theme throughout Scripture that whenever there is victory, which we have victory here because of Mount Zion, whenever there is victory, God's children, God's people, sing out a song of praise for His greatness. Now, so who is singing the song? He goes on to tell us, he says, No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So, this is kind of where making your mind up on where you stand on the 144,000 comes in. Because if this is 144,000 Jewish believers who go out, then these 144,000 are kind of set aside as a special class that they are the only ones who who know this song of praise to God. If this 144,000 is representative of uh, all of God's redeemed, it's representative of uh, the church, it's representative of those who have uh, surrendered to Christ for salvation, 
then this is a declaration of praise from every believer uh, or every Christian, which it says, those who have been redeemed from the earth. So, once again, where you take your stance on that, uh, but regardless, it doesn't change the overall theme of the picture here, which is victory in Christ. As we move closer to the end, we see this declaration of praise and honor and glory to Christ for what He has done and what He is about to do. And it goes on to describe these people. And it says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from God and, and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So they are described in two ways. First, their purity. So once again, as I studied, there are those who say that these are literal 144,000 people who are um, virgins and they are, are praised for their devotion to God in that. Um, the only thing I want to say about that is really nowhere throughout Scripture do we see uh, virginity praised in this sense outside of uh, marriage uh, and devotion to God. Nowhere is this presented. But throughout Scripture, we do see this. We do see purity um, illustrative of one's devotion to God. Think of throughout the Old Testament, there are several references of the nation of Israel when they turn to worship other gods, when they turn to worship idols. Um, in the book of Hosea, uh, God tells Hosea, go out and find a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom because the nation of Israel has uh, played a whore in their relationship with him. I understand those are strong words. I looked it up. Those are the exact words that he uses uh, or the scripture uses. But it's this declaration that when the people moved away from God, the way God illustrated it was adultery. The way God illustrated it was uh, sexual immorality. That illustrated uh, the people's rejection of God and turning to uh, another God or another false God to follow. In fact, in James 4, 4, it says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So even James uses that same picture, that same language. You adulterous people, you would turn your back on God in this illustration of purity and chasing something less than Him. So this idea of they being virgins... I believe, is more a reference of their purity and staying devoted to Christ in the midst of this time, in the midst of this um, um, time of tribulation, in the midst of this, uh, the beast and the, the second beast, the, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, making war against God's people. So this is more of a reference of their purity in following Christ. And I think that that's carried on in their devotion that we see next. Because it says, um, it is these who have not, in verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed uh, from mankind as first fruits from God and from the Lamb. And in their mouth is no lie, uh, no lie was found, for they are blameless. 
So once again, this is a picture of those who have devoted themselves to Christ. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Their lifestyles backing this up. So in the midst of this war where the Antichrist makes war against God and His children, where the Antichrist makes war, whether you believe it's the church that is still here, or whether you believe the church is gone and these are all new converts, as the Antichrist makes war against whoever it is that is following God, it is this picture that they have stayed devoted. They have stayed faithful. And we see that theme continue to run through this chapter. And so we start off these first five verses declaring God's greatness and talking about His victory that He is bringing. And for those who have stayed devoted to Him, for those who have stayed faithful to Him, they are victorious along with Christ as we move through the end. Alright, so next we have these three angels bringing these messages um, to kind of creation. So let's start off, let's look at verses 6 and 7. It says this. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The first angel that comes forth, the first angel is this declaration of the gospel. And I think it's telling, I think it's, I think it's incredibly neat to be honest with you, that whenever we see pictures of God's wrath and God's judgment in Scripture, we always see alongside of that pictures of God's grace. I'm telling you, go in the Old Testament and read, read through the book of Judges. Read through the, uh, the stories where Israel is... Kind of through uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah where, <clears throat> where the people have turned their back on God and they begin to worship other gods. And God says, look, because of your sin, I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to discipline you. And these people are going to come and take you over. And these people are going to attack you. And this is going to happen because of your sin. It is always followed up with, but I will leave a remnant. Or, but I will draw you back. Or, but at the end of this time, I will bring you back home. And there's always this... There's always this declaration, this proclamation of God's faithfulness, of God's grace. Even in the midst of His judgment, there is still, in His discipline, there is still God's grace in the midst of that. So we've talked about how this is moving us to the end. And once we get to the end, it doesn't mean that God's patience is no longer existent, but it means that we come to this spot where judgment is complete, where consummation or the, the fulfillment of the promises that God has made through Christ are all made complete. And there comes a time where the door of salvation closes. And before we get to that time, even here at the end, there's this idea that the gospel will be proclaimed. This angel, it says, is flying and he carries with him the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth every nation, tribe, language, and people. The eternal gospel is just that. It's the gospel that is existed from eternity past and the fact that this was always God's plan. It's the gospel that exists for eternity and the fact that Jesus Christ will always sit on the throne as the Lamb who was slain and risen again. And our salvation is eternal through Christ, through this gospel. 
gospel. And the message that he brings is to fear God and give glory. This is the message of repentance because the hour for judgment has come. Basically, the door's about to shut. Know that this is getting to the end. These are the last times. We've seen this declaration that through this seven-year period, people's hearts begin to harden. This is one last call, one last moment saying, please repent, please turn, that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But this is God's message to repent and turn to Him. Then in verse 8, we see the second angel. It says this in verse 8, Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She was... She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this is our first introduction to the book of Revelation to Babylon the Great. We'll see Babylon mentioned later on in chapter 16 and some after that. Babylon is representative of the enemies of God. In the Old Testament, Babylon was a nation that was an enemy of the nation of Israel. They came, they took them into captivity. That's when David, or excuse me, Daniel and uh, his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, uh, Azariah, went into captivity. When the, uh, the Babylonians came and took them, they were held in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then they were allowed to go back to the nation of Israel to, to rebuild the temple, rebuild their nation, rebuild the walls. And so Babylon was seen as this enemy to Israel. And so here in Revelation, we have Babylon again. Once again, not the physical nation of Babylon, which is no longer in existence, but this is a picture or this is a representation of God's enemies, of those who are enemies against God's people. And we see how Well, she's later described in chapter 16 as a prostitute, or this nation is described as a prostitute because what they do, or what the nation does, what the enemies of God do, is they draw those away, strive to draw people away from God because of what he says here, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And this kind of plays back into uh, verse 4 where it talks about those of the 144,000 who have not defiled themselves with women. Kind of plays into this idea of their purity once again. Once again, not the physical people, but just the idea of staying consistent and staying faithful to God. So the first angel brought this message of the gospel, this message of grace. The second angel declares to the enemies of God, judgment is coming. Your fall is coming. The end of your time, the end of your reign, the end of your uh, freedom to go and make war against God's people. That time is coming to an end. You are about to fall. Then we have the third angel in verses uh, 9 through 11. It says this, <clears throat> And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image who worship or, and whoever receives the mark of its name. 
So last week we saw that mark, that's the mark of the beast, the 666, uh, that it says that um, you'll receive in your right hand or your forehead and uh, you won't be able to do any kind of business or, or make a sale or even go and buy food unless you have this mark. So last week we saw there was this warning, do not receive the mark. And here we see this, this picture of God's eternal judgment against those who have sided with the beast, who have sided with the Antichrist, who have sided with Satan. And the judgment that we see here, um, well, let's just look at a couple of things that he says. Um, in verse 9, or in verse, um, in, in verse 9, it says, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, verse 10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Now, so far, we've seen God's judgment. Here in, <clears throat> in, verse, in chapter 16, we're going to see God's wrath poured out. We've got these seven bowls of God's wrath poured out on His enemies. And yet here it tells us that He will drink the full strength of God's wrath. Now, as much as we've seen the bad things happen so far with the seals being broken, the trumpets being uh, blown, these, these bowls that we'll see here in a little bit in the next couple of weeks being poured out on God's people, or not God's people, excuse me, on God's enemies. This idea of the full strength of God's wrath. This is the idea of eternal punishment. This is the idea of eternal judgment. This is the idea of, of hell. This is not um, God's wrath in, in the fact of the, the locusts and, the, and, the, and the, the sicknesses and everything else that we've seen so far. This is the fullness of God's wrath, God's judgment, which is seen in eternal punishment of hell. And we can see that because of some of the other language that he uses. Um, look in verse, the, the verse of verse, rest of verse 10. It says, Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. That picture of fire and sulfur. Uh, we've seen that uh, Jesus often, when he talks about those being cast into the lake of fire, or those cast into the darkness where there is fire, where there is uh, the torment, where there is the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in verse 11, it says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. The smoke of their torment, their punishment, their judgment lasts forever. The scariest thing about hell is not the intensity of the judgment, which is intense, which is more than we could ever imagine, which is more than we could ever think of or somebody could come up with, but it's the idea that it is forever and ever. There is no end. Just as heaven is so brilliant and beautiful because there is no end, hell is equally terrifying uh, because there is no end. And this is God's judgment poured out on those who have rejected Jesus, who have rejected God, and sided themselves wholly and completely with the Antichrist, taking on that mark, worshiping Him as this false God and as this false Messiah, as we saw last week. So we have these three angels coming, one declaring God's gospel, one declaring this is your last chance, repent, and the other two declaring if you have not repented, this is what is coming your direction. Then verses 12 and 13, it says this, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So once again, just as we saw last week, there's this reminder of endurance. And we'll see, we'll kind of go back over this in a second. And it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. 
Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. We've talked about how this end time, once again, whether you believe it's the church that is here, whether you believe these are new converts, that this is not going to be an easy time for those who believe in Jesus Christ that are on the earth at this time. The, 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 the enemy will make war against God's people. And though God protects His people from this judgment, from this wrath that is poured out, the, the people who are suffering it will see God's people and their hearts will become hardened and they will grow high hostile towards God, and they will grow hostile towards God's people. And so we see this, <clears throat> we see this picture, we see this, uh, this call once again for endurance. We see this call to stand firm. We see this call to say, look, you've endured, you stood firm. If you die now, if you are martyred now, if you die for your faith now, that is a blessing because you have stood firm, you have been faithful, and what you have is your reward in Christ. What you have is your reward for eternity. But it is once again a call for endurance, a call for those who know Christ to stand Stand firm no matter what comes your way. To stand firm no matter what is, a ha- what is happening. And it is also a reminder that, look, the end is coming. And the end is a time of judgment. And the end is a time when the wicked are punished. The end is a time when sin is punished. The end is a time when your faith is made complete. So persevere because the end is almost here. Persevere because the end is almost... Jesus Christ is about to come back. Persevere. Keep strong. Stay focused because it's almost over. Time is almost up. So after we have these three angels, then we have this picture of two different harvests. And so before we read this, um, flip over to Matthew chapter 13, if you will. I didn't have Matthew 13 marked. Okay. Matthew 13... um, I want us to look at verses 24 through 30 because I think it kind of helps us kind of get a picture of, of, of what is going on and kind of, um, kind of keeps in mind that, that this idea of harvest is one that Jesus has talked about. So in, in Matthew 13, uh, 24 through 30, Jesus gives a parable of the weeds and it goes like this. It says, He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So that would be the gospel that is being proclaimed and sown out into the field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. So that would be kind of the time we're in now. In our world, even in the church, you have the good seed that has gone out. You have the wheat. Those are those who are believers who have grown up. But also in the mix of that, we have false religion. We have uh, false believers. We have those who have rejected Christ. We have the weeds scattered among with the wheat. Verse 30, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
So Jesus said there's going to come a time of harvest. And at this time of harvest, it will be a time of rejoicing when the wheat is taken up and brought into the barn. But it will also be a time of judgment when the weeds are taken up and they are thrown into the fire and God's judgment is presented. And here in this, these last few verses, verses 14 through uh, 20, we have this harvest pictured. We have this harvest where Christ comes back at the second coming and He draws to Himself all believers. And we have at the same time this harvest of the grapes of God's wrath that is poured out on His enemies. So let's just start off verses um, 14 through 16. It says this, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So we have this picture of Christ coming down on this white cloud. The white cloud, the one who looks like the Son of Man, with the golden crown on His head and the sickle in His hand. This is Christ. And this is the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes to uh, gather all of His children, destroy His enemies, and establish His kingdom here on the earth. He comes down and this messenger angel delivers the message that says, put in your sickle and reap. The, for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Fully ripe. This is time. This is the end. This is when all those who are going to accept Christ have accepted Christ. This is when the war is going to be over. This is when Jesus gathers all those to Him to protect, to save, to fulfill their faith fully and completely. Once again, if you believe the rapture happens at the beginning of the seven years, this is when the uh, 144,000 and those who uh, have been saved through their proclamation uh, would be gathered up to Christ to meet Him in the air when He comes at His second coming. If you do not believe, if you believe this is, uh, the rapture happens at the end of the seven years, this is when this happens. So we have this second coming of Christ. We have this coming where Christ comes, where He sets to uh, gather His children to Himself, where He brings victory and He destroys His enemies. And so we see that in verses 17 through 20. It says this, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for it is grapes, for its grapes are ripe. Verse 19, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle uh, for 1,600 stadia, or um, about 184 miles. This last picture where these grapes are gathered up into the winepress of God's wrath, uh, for the wrath of God. Uh, this is this picture of this final battle where the blood rises to the, uh, the horse's bridle. Um, is this picture of this battle of Armageddon, this last battle between uh, 
the armies of Satan, the, the, the Antichrist, and all those who have taken the mark to follow Him, and against Jesus Christ returning and His people. And it'll be a great battle where Jesus is victorious, where Jesus' wrath, God's wrath, is poured out on His enemies. They are destroyed, and Jesus takes the victory. And so here we see this picture of the end. When Jesus Christ comes and we have this picture of the harvest where He gathers to Himself His children and He gathers, well, uh, He sends out His wrath and destruction towards His enemies. And this final battle is done. This final battle that has been declared has been won and has been won by Jesus Christ. And so as we kind of pull back and get this picture of the end, it is a picture of victory in Christ. It is a picture of uh, victory when Jesus Christ comes back at that second coming to draw His people and to bring final judgment against His enemies. But even in that, and even in this picture of judgment that we've seen against Babylon and against those who have taken the image and against those who are receiving the fullness of God's wrath with the, uh, the, the, the grapes and the wrath of His winepress, or the winepress of the wrath of God, We see right smack dab in the middle this angel bringing out the gospel, proclaiming the eternal gospel. In the same way the gospel is eternal, that that fire that that comes up from their suffering is eternal. And in the midst of all of this, victory for God's people, judgment for God's enemies, there's this declaration of the gospel. There's this declaration of Jesus Christ and redemption that has come, that has been brought through Him. So once again, as we see all of this stuff, There is still God's grace. And this declaration of God's grace is the door's about to close, the door's about to shut. Grab hold of this while you still can. And once again, we have no idea when the end time is going to be. It could start tomorrow. It could start in a thousand years. But we are still given the same declaration, the same proclamation to take the gospel, to take it out, to proclaim it to people. Because the God who wants people saved at the end is the same God who wants people saved right now. And God has chosen in His grace to use us as His people to take His gospel out to the world. So let us be about taking God's gospel out that we might see others come to know Him so they don't have to face this horrible wrath, this horrible judgment that is to come, whether it's through the end times or whether it's through death and not knowing Him. Let us pray that God uses us to take the gospel out to see people saved. Let me pray to close us out. Father God, we come before You now. Thank You for this time that You've given us. Father God, we thank You for Your gospel that You have given us. We thank You for the eternal nature of it. We thank You for the victory that is inherent in it. And Father God, we thank You that You have saved us. Father God, I pray that as we read stories like this in Scripture, these stories of victory, God, yes, may we get excited. Yes, may we be thankful. Yes, may we praise You and worship You for what is to come. But Father God, may we never lose sight, God, that once the end is here and once that final victory is won, for us it is great. But for those who don't know You, Father God, it is is an eternity of sadness. And Father God, much more than sadness. Father God, let us have the same heart You have that takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And Father God, burden our hearts, God, to pray for, to invite, to share the gospel, Lord, with those that we know who do not know You. Father God, let us be a church that doesn't just gather up and wait, but let us be a church that goes out, for the harvest is ready. 
You just want workers to go out and to work in your harvest fields. Father God, before the final harvest is here, God, let us turn as much wheat or weeds into wheat through you, through your gospel, through your saving power, Father God, as we possibly can. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.